0: Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Today, we get the opportunity to share with you one of the most incredible conversations ever – with Damon West. It was so good, we have to split it up into two parts.
1: Okay, you guys. This man was known as the Uptown Burglar in the Dallas area and was eventually caught and sentenced to life in prison. We had so many questions for him. Like, what was day one of prison like? How scared was he?
0: And how did he go from a Division One college quarterback to becoming a stockbroker, to homeless, to addicted to meth, and then to prison?
1: And you will hear his opinion of which prison movie actually got it right, which is fascinating. Can't wait for you to hear part one of this amazing, amazing, amazing conversation with Damon West. I'm Kevin. And I'm Stephanie. And
0: during our marriage, we have dealt with an electrocution, a brain tumor, brain surgery.
1: Then doctors telling us that children were not in our future.
0: All right, listeners, before we get to this just incredible conversation with Damon, we want to make parents aware of what you're about to hear, just in case you have some little ones in the car with you right now.
1: Now, Damon's story is absolutely incredible, and nothing he says is inappropriate at all. However, he does talk about his prior drug use and what prison life was actually like. Depending on the age of your children, this could be a really good teaching moment for your kids. But as fellow parents, we just wanted to make you aware. Steph, Ooh.
0: this next conversation is going to be amazing, and we're actually doing it in person.
1: Our first time ever with like an actual guest, not like a friend. Oh, right? someone we
0: haven't met before. Yes, that is true. Mm-hmm. That is true. Well, friends, our next guest is an international keynote speaker, best-selling author. And criminal justice professor. The new book that he co-authored with John Gordon is titled How to Be a Coffee Bean, 111 Life-Changing Ways to Create Positive Change. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Tell Us a Good Story, Mr. Damon Damon
2: West. West. Hey, what's going on, y'all? It's great to be here. Thank you for the round of applause. This is great. It is great to be in person. This is like a total God thing, as we yes. just talked for the first time two weeks ago. I think so, yeah. And you said you were in Ohio. I said, hey, I've got a Columbus, Ohio on my presentation list. And you're like, we're in Columbus.
0: Yes, because you spoke at Wendy's today. I did. So You're in Columbus. Yeah, so that's absolutely. fantastic. And you said you didn't have any Frosties while you're there, which I'm impressed
2: with. I do not eat any Frosties. I love Frosties. Now, don't get me. Wrong, I'm not anti-Frosty. Right. You're not. You know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not like I, I didn't cancel the Frosty, but I don't eat a lot of Frosties. If I were to pick a sweet to eat, it would be carrot cake. Like carrot cake is kryptonite. Really? When we go eat in a little while, if we're at a restaurant, they have carrot cake, I'll order a piece. And I don't need carrot cake. But I I think about like this, like so God gave me carrot cake as kryptonite, right? Which is not bad (laughs) because most places don't carry carrot cake cake. No.
1: I think I know a place that has carrot cake.
2: Stop it. Where I'll hook
1: you up. I'll let you know. You'll
2: have to let me know after this. I how, will. You see how like this, it's almost like addict behavior. We're going to talk about addict behavior today, <laughs> but I just threw my addiction out there. It's not, it's a healthy one today. It's carrot cake. It's not like meth, but I threw it out there and, and just hoping someone would say, oh, I know where some carrot cake is and it worked. <laughs> I got you. Well, Done.
0: David, first off, thank you for saying yes to us. So we were introduced to you by our mutual friend, Bob O'Dean, and I went to Steph and I was like, Steph, I just got off the phone. With Damon West, you're gonna love this guy. And she's like, Okay, what's what's the story? And I was like, Well, he served a few years in prison. I was and like, wait a me- second, wait a second.
1: Did you like, did he kill somebody? Yeah. <laughs> how many people did he kill? Like, do we know how he killed them? Like what's happening? Tell me everything. Yeah. I'm
0: like, Well, I haven't got that far yet. He's like, I don't think but that's I what it is. I don't think that's why he served time. No. And then she's like, but but we're meeting him in person and you didn't <laughs> verify that yet? I'm like, yeah. Steph, I'm pretty sure. We're fine here, right? Especially if Bob O'Dean <laughs> totally.
2: introduces to him. Right. We're good. We're good. So, look, And Steph, I get this. People are fascinated with prison, right? percent Because it's a, it's a world you don't get to go see. There's only two ways to really go into a prison. You work there, you live there, you know? And so people are fascinated. My mom is one of them. My mom is fascinated. When I first got out of prison, this is kind of going backwards in the story, but I first got out of prison, I live with my parents in their spare bedroom. For the first two years I'm out, which, and I love my My parents, this summer, will be married for 55 years. Wow. Oh, great family. I, and I don't have that as an excuse in my background of why I ended up in prison with a life sentence, right? But my mom and my dad were waiting for me to pick me up. They came to see me in prison, by the way, over 150 times. Over wow. 150 visits. Yes. I mean, that's like, that is what unconditional love is. And that's what parents have for their kids. They came to see me over 150 times. They were waiting for me outside the gate November 16, 2015 when the parole board lets me go. And I swear to God, the first month I was home, my mom called me in the living room almost every night. Damon, come in here and watch this on TV. And she's watching Locked Up. And sixty days in, sixty days in, she's like, she loves prison shows. Do you know this guy? But, and she's like, Damon, this is the stuff you were talking about. I'm like, Mom, they're in a maximum security prison. That's what goes on. Uh, my dad, the first week I was home, my dad sits me down in the living room. He's like, Damon, watch all these prison movies with me. Tell me who got it right. So we're watching Cool Hand Luke. We're watching Shawshank Redemption. Really. Which, by the way, Shawshank got it right. Really? Yes. If you're fat, if anybody listening to this, if you're interested in prison culture, prison movies, whoever consulted on the movie Shawshank either had done time or worked in a prison for a long time because they got it right all the way down to the inmate culture, everything that goes on, they got prison right. It's the best prison movie ever.
0: Okay, remind me, when we go to dinner later, I have stories. So we interviewed the director of Shawshank Prison, which is an hour north of here in Mansfield, Ohio. It's right down the road from here? Yeah. Wow. Yes. So if you're ever back here in Columbus, Ohio, we will gladly take Mm -hmm. you there and go on a tour because that's where they filmed the movie Shawshank. Incredible. And it was actually a real-life prison at some point and then closed and they made the movie there. But I've got some stories for you after this. Let me ask
2: you something about Shawshank. This is rolling perfectly into the podcast. When y'all watch the movie Shawshank... Yes, and you hear that you see it. It's two and a half hours. It's Morgan Freeman's character, Red, narrating the story, and he's talking about Andy, uh, Mm -hmm. Tim Robbins' character. So when you watch Shawshank, what's the story about? Who's the story about? Do you think the story's about hope? But who's the story about?
1: Well, I, I thought it was about Tim Robbins. But I think it ended up being about Morgan Freeman, didn't it?
2: So that's where I was getting to on this. Like when I watched it, my dad sits me down. I'd seen Shawshank back in the 90s when it came out. But I mean, in the 90s, I'm in my early 20s at best, um, living my best life in college, partying as a fraternity guy, college football player. My real world life hasn't even started yet because I'm, I'm not a great guy back in college, by the way. anybody's listened to this and went to college with me, I was arrogant. I was cocky. But watching Shawshank back then, I couldn't grasp what the movie was about, this hope thing you're talking about. But after I got out of prison and watched it with my dad, I watched it and I realized this story is Red's story. It's Morgan Freeman's story. It happens to be that he's telling the story about the guy that saved his life because he's telling the story about this guy named Andy Dufresne who comes into this prison right. and changes everything in that prison. Andy Dufresne brought hope to the hopeless, right? And Red is dead. Red's a dead man. He's starting the story off, he's a dead man walking. There's a lot of dead people we see walking around. They're, they're dead behind the eyes because they lost hope. But what does Andy tell Red? Get busy living or get busy dying. Red is telling the story about the guy that saved his life because he restored hope. And that's one of the things I get to do in my new life. I get to restore hope in the hopeless. And whenever I get to go into a prison, like the guys I was in prison with yesterday with Dak Prescott in that Texas prison, I told them, you know, you see people coming to prisons all the time. They want to smuggle all kinds of different stuff in. You hear about it. You hear about they smuggle cell phones. They smuggle dope. They smuggle weapons in. I smuggle hope. So let's step back
0: a sec. Give context here. I want to go back to, let's say, college, right? Because you were a big-time athlete. You're yep. in Texas, high school football star, right? You're a quarterback. You get a Division one scholarship to North Texas University, mm-hmm. starting quarterback, what happens there that takes you down a different path?
2: Yeah, and that's a good term for it. It's a fork in the road. September 21st, 96, we're playing against Texas A&M. I'm 20 years old. I'm the starting quarterback for a Division one team in America. Third game of the season, third play of this game, we're driving down the field against the Aggies. I go down, suffer a career and an injury, and I never play college football again. And I get up to this fork in the road in life, and football is gone but more than just football was gone that day, my identity was gone with it. I've wrapped my identity up into something yeah. external and it, you can't do that in life. Your identity it cannot be something you're attached to because that's not you. It has to be something from within because anything you're attached to can be removed from you. And when football was gone, I made a lot of wrong turns. I couldn't deal with life on life's terms, so I got into more hardcore drugs. Before the injury, you know, I would drink beer, smoke pot, but after the injury I got into drugs like cocaine, ecstasy pills, because I couldn't live with life on life's terms, so I put chemicals in to change the way I felt, to alter my way of living. What was your injury? I separated my shoulder, third-degree separation of my shoulder. I got to come back in the offseason and start competing for my job again. But in the offseason, I severed my Achilles tendon in half. Oh. Yeah. oh, no. When that happened, it was over. So, I mean, that game against a and last game I ever played. Didn't know it was going to be the last game I ever played, but the Achilles tendon thing was too hard to come back from. It was just a, that was a devastating injury. But, I believe
0: it. Yeah. So, how did you get introduced to cocaine or meth? Her Was ecstasy, it or ecstasy? All of it. Yeah. Is it the circle of friends that you were hanging out with? How How do you get introduced to that for the first time?
2: Yeah. So there were guys that did I mean I knew that did that stuff. They were in the fraternity. They played sports with me. Guys on campus. Yeah, but it was a world I didn't get into, the cocaine and stuff like that, because I was so busy in football. You know, right. I was so determined to be – and I'm an underdog, man. I'm, I'm an undersized quarterback. I'm five foot ten, 165 pounds. Back then, no one wanted short quarterbacks. I had this giant chip on my shoulder, which a chip on your shoulder can be a good thing too. It can be the thing that motivates you every day. But this giant chip on my shoulder was to work harder than anybody else to get where I wanted to go. So when I had football to focus on, my energy was there – I didn't have time to go party and do cocaine. I would yeah. go drink some beers and, and, and do that. I would, you know, I would smoke some pot. But I'm not, I'm not getting off in the hardcore stuff. I don't have a reason to. But when I lost football, all my reason for living was gone. And instead of falling back on the things like the way I was raised in a home where Christ was at the center of everything, that's gone too. I've lost that along the way. So is it one of those
0: situations where once you take one of the hardcore drugs, is it immediately you're
2: hooked? It wasn't like that for me until meth. which you come here in the story? Yeah, meth was meth was one of those drugs. Uh, you know, it's like touching a live wire. I was instantly hooked with methamphetamine. I mean, just like that, instantly hooked. But it's made in a lab. It's made to get you hooked. And okay. I, when I I smoked meth one time and I was instantly hooked. Now the the cocaine and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean I, I like the feeling of it. I didn't get hooked immediately. I was hooked eventually. But in my addiction, I mean, I'll do I'll do things. I'll. Addicts give up their goals to meet their behaviors.
1: Mm.
2: Addicts give up goals to meet behaviors. That's what addiction is. Focused people, driven and successful people, they give up behaviors to meet goals, but not an addict. Now look, I'm not just talking about drug and alcohol addicts here. I'm talking about any kind of addict. Food, money, clothing, shopping, the internet, Instagram, social media. Anything that you can be addicted to that takes you away from the most important things in life, you can be an addict to that too. And you'll give up your goals to meet your behaviors.
1: So did you sell then?
2: Sure. Absolutely. I mean, it, in order to be, to get my drugs for free, I would sell drugs too. I mean, that's most drug users end up being drug dealers too. But I mean, I'm not the kind of drug dealer that you know, I'm not Scarface. I'm not sitting with, you know, a, a, in a nice house or anything like that. I sold enough to be able to pay for my own. And mm-hmm. that's generally how, you know, it was in college and right for college, you know. You four or five buddies want to go in and get some Coke, and, hey, I'll go put it together. I'll put the deal together, and, you know, you tell everybody a little bit higher number on what it's going to cost, and yours is paid for too.
0: Steph, what's most important to you when it comes to building a new home?
1: Okay. I want a builder who's an expert in what they do. is going to be honest with me and cares about even the smallest of details.
0: Well, thankfully we know just the builder.
1: You know it. It's Jay and Connie Luby with Luby Companies.
0: Friends, don't just take our word for it. Go check out their website at lubycompanies.com. That's L-U-E-B-B-E companies.com.
1: Let them be your builder for life. They're freaking awesome.
0: So here's what is very interesting because Steph, we watch Home Alone, and the two burglars in there were what the Wet Bandits or something. Yes, Damon ends up going on kind of a, a burglar spree, right to the point where he was given a nickname.
1: Wait, wh- you actually? You wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you robbed houses?
0: Yeah. Wh- what? What? Rob? Is- wait. Why are you so excited about that?
1: I don't know. Oh. <laughs>
2: So here's where, like, <laughs> definitions matter. R- robbing someone in the state of Texas where you have a weapon or you, you the fear of a weapon is used, like, you can, you know, you put your finger in your jacket and raise it when right. you've got a gun, that would be a robbery because it looks like you have a weapon. A burglary is when you go into someone's house without their permission and you take things. That's okay. The, yes. Okay. So, so did I break into people's houses? Absolutely. I have a lot of victims out there. I, I mean, look. My victims, the people whose homes I broke into, I didn't just steal their property. I stole their sense of security. And I don't even know if mm-hmm. they're going to get that back. You know, right. they'll, they'll live with that for the rest Fear. of their lives. Oh, man, I, who knows the amount of damage I did to my victims? I and mean, there's a there's a subset of people that I negatively impacted to a, a very high degree. And, and I don't know if they ever recovered from that. But in my life as a burglar, we we, I, I use I statements here because I own my behaviors. That's part of like living a life that's real. I broke into people's homes and didn't just steal their property. I stole their sense of security, but we broke into so many homes. I broke into so many homes over this crime spree for three years. And it was started. It started in the uptown neighborhood of Dallas where I was once living. when I was a stockbroker in Dallas, but they called these burglaries, the uptown burglaries. And I was known as the uptown burglar. So, you get one of those crime sprees where you get a name attached to it. So, oh Stop. my gosh,
1: I have so many things to talk to you about right now. Okay, so you're a stockbroker, you do these burglaries. Monday morning, you're there, you know, doing the job. Are you reading about? Oh, no,
2: no, no. This, was, okay. this didn't go on. So, what happened was I was a broker partying all the time, up all night. Passed out of sleep at work one day. This other stockbroker, this is in 2004. Other stockbroker comes up, he sees me sleeping, he wakes me up. He's like, Damon, you can't sleep on a job like this. The markets are open. You're messing with people's money. They'll fire you. Come on down to the parking garage. I got something that'll pick you up. So I go with this guy to the parking garage that day. We get into his nice little sports car. He hands me this glass pipe. Crystal rocks in it. I've never seen a glass pipe before. So I'm like, man, what is that? He's like, just relax. He said, it's crystal meth. He said, you're going to love this stuff. And y'all, truer words have never been spoken. I fell in love with Crystal meth that day. It's the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug. One time instantly hooked. And I started giving everything away for that drug. And then eventually I gave up my job. Then it was my home. Then it was my car. They repossessed that. Um, I went from working on Wall Street to living on the streets of Dallas within 18 months. Of- I was homeless. Yeah. No. Oh, I've slept in abandoned buildings. I've slept on park benches. I've done all that stuff. That is when I became a criminal. Because once the money was gone, the savings was gone, I had to fund my addiction somehow. I've lost everything, but I've gained this, this craving addiction for methamphetamines, and I follow in with a bunch of other meth addicts, and we are thieves. Theft and meth go together like rats and trash. Mm. Take that to the bank. Really? Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to be stealing. Well, you, you can't hold down a job. You're incapable of doing that, and then you've got to fund your addiction somehow, and you resort to crime so many people that are locked up in the prison system in America are in there because of drugs. Now they got a burglary charge, theft charge, whatever, but it goes back to a lot of drugs. You know, female prisoners, you look at a lot of female prisoners that go in for prostitution, go poll people that have been to prison for prostitution. Most of that was around drugs, drugs. When I was in prison, uh, you know, I was a sober observer to what was going on around me. I'd gotten a bachelor's degree back in 1999 from University of North Texas in sociology. So when I get to prison, I'm a sober observer of what's going on. Prison was like a giant sociological experiment that I was in because anything can happen inside this place. And it's it's a world of upside down rules because in prison, people can do whatever they want to do. The only rules that can stop you are rules that are established inside the prison. And every pod that you live on is different. They got different rules because there's a different hierarchy of who's in charge.
0: Every prison will be different.
2: Yeah, well, yeah every prison, every pod, even on, on the same prison. I mean, like it depends on what gang runs that one pod, right? Who's in control of that pod? What's allowed to go on? It's a world where the strong survive. And if you're perceived to be weak, and weak would be someone that will not defend themselves. They won't fight back. They're devoured, man. I saw human beings devoured inside that place, stuff you can't unsee. So
0: that was one thing I was thinking. Day one, you enter prison. Mm -hmm. What is that like? Are gangs just constantly trying to recruit you? Are you having to make a ton of decisions? Is it, I literally have to fight?
2: Yeah, and I knew what was going to happen because this old guy in Dallas County Jail, the guy that shares the story of the coffee bean with me, we'll go in that a little bit. But he told me what the first day of prison was going to look like. He said, and he was telling me, he's an old black man. He's telling me, man, everything in prison is about race. Race runs the whole institution. The inmates want it to be that way. And that's what I'm saying. The rules of prison, the inmates decide the rules. Everybody in prison wants it to be about race because they want you to separate by your own race. Because if you hang out with your own race and your own kind, there's no chance for a racial war to break out if one person's just running astray and somebody from a different race jumps on that person you can't get into a fight with someone in prison of a different race because you could start a gang war in there because everybody's supposed to belong to their own race, right? But my parents have told me before I go to prison, you can't get into one of these gangs, the Aryan Brotherhood gangs, no gangs and no tattoos, is what my mom says. She said, you come home as the man we raised or don't come back to us at all. Mm. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but i got to figure this out. So the old black man in Dallas County Jail, Mr. Jackson, he's telling me, what the first day is gonna look like. He said, because you're white, you're gonna be approached by a white guy first. He said, the first guy that's gonna come up to you is not a threat, he's an information gatherer, he's a scout. He's gonna ask you one relevant question for your heart check. The heart check is the first fight you get into. It's the fight where they, they check your heart, the, you know, to see if you're gonna defend yourself when the pressure comes, because it's coming right away. First guy's gonna come up, he's gonna ask you one relevant question, what gang do you wanna be a part of? He said, man, get him out of your face as fast as you can and get ready because the second guy comes up to you, he's not coming to talk to you. He's going to force you. He's going to come hurt you. Really? He said, when the second guy gets within range, put your fist in his mouth. He said, hit him as hard as you can. Don't even let him talk because you know what's coming, right? So I know this is coming at me. First day I go into the maximum security level five prison. Level five is the highest security level there is in Texas. It's where lifers go. I'm a lifer. It's a building called Seven Building. 432 people. Everybody's got life. You have to stay on that building for five years before you can move to any other part of the prison. It is an island. The reason why they make you stay there for five years is they want you to get escaping off your mind. They want you to get acclimated to prison. Okay, You're not coming off the building. You're an escape risk. So I walk into Seven building, G-Pod 2 section. I walk in the door, and within five minutes, a little white guy comes up to me, a little ball-headed white dude, and I'm standing by the door because Jackson told me, don't run to your bunk, put your bags down, put your back against the wall, and just let this happen. So I'm like, all right, so I do exactly what he says, and I wait. Within five minutes, a little bitty white guy comes up first, a little ball headed white dude. He's tatted up from head to toe. Even his, even his eyelids are tatted up. I remember the guy. He gets in my face. He says, hey, white boy, what gang do you want to be a part of? What family do you want to be a part of? They call gangs families. And I'm like, man, just get out of my face, little guy. I'm riding with God. Please just leave me alone. I'm here with God. He laughed at me. He said, man, God isn't here, dude. We kicked him out a long time ago, but we're here. and We're coming to get you. You better get ready. He goes up the stairwell on the right side. A few minutes later, coming on the third tier, which is the top level of cells. Coming on the third tier is biggest white dude I've ever seen. He points at me from the third tier, coming to get you. He's coming down the stairwell on the right side. I'm, I get a good look at this guy. This guy's like an ogre, man. He's huge, muscled up in veins, massive dude. Like Brock Lesnar coming down the steps. Bald head and a oh. swastika tattooed all around the top <sighs> of the skull. A Swastika, two beady eyeballs, and muscles are coming at me, man. And, man, I remember what Jackson said, and I reached up and hit this guy as hard as I – I mean, I hit him in the mouth with everything I had, y'all. And in 20 seconds, that fight was over because he beat me from one side of the day to the other. My, my hit didn't phase him. him. I mean, it made him laugh. Really? Oh, man, I gave him everything I had. This guy beat me from one side of the day to the other. Jackson told me, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. That was the rule. He said, don't worry about going out and winning these fights. You're going to lose so many of these fights. Just show up and fight. Defend yourself. This is the predatory environment thing I'm telling you about. If you don't defend yourself in this place like that, this fighting that I'm doing on day one, that's nothing compared to what's coming down the road for me. Ugh, it's gonna be worse. Because if you don't defend yourself, all the predators come out. Because this is someone that won't hurt them, that won't fight back, that won't give them a black eye, won't bust their lip. It's easy prey and there's gonna be guys that are like that. And these are the guys, you know, you see a guy that's been raped repeatedly, passed around and broken as a human being men are broken when that happens to them broken there's just not the same person anymore i didn't want to be one of those you know so jackson's like just defend yourself just go and fight don't worry about winning and losing that's what i did y'all i Mm -hmm. just for two weeks i fought the white gangs i mean and lost most of my fights after that it was the black gangs because jackson told me you'll fight the whites first and you fight the blacks and then you'll earn the chance to walk alone it took me almost two months of fighting constantly really Probably three dozen fights in the first two months. Lost 75% of my fights.
1: Wait, where are the guards in this?
2: Yeah, I mean, here's the deal about fighting in prison. Like, It's prison. There's going to be fights. The guards know there's going to be fights. The inmates know there's going to be fights. Guards typically are like, hey, look, I got a job to do. My job is to make sure that y'all are doing the right thing when I'm around. You know, if I'm not around, I can't see what's going on. Wait till I get out of the pod. That's generally <sighs> the, the mindset of the guards. Because the guards can't stop that from happening. It's prison. That's part of the prison culture. Mm. Violence violence is the glue that holds all of prison together. It's the threat of violence, actually. So really? Yeah, because the threat of violence says that if I touch something that's not mine, I can get hurt. If I take something that's not mine, yes. I get hurt. If I touch another person, if I put my hands on somebody, if I bump into somebody, and I don't have respect enough to say, excuse me, or I'm sorry, or my bad, that can get me hurt. It can get me killed to do that. So... The threat of violence has people doing the right thing. I talk about this in my book, The Change Agent. A thief in prison is a very rare thing to find. In fact, prison, if you've established yourself and you're not someone that can be pushed around, you've you have shown that you're going to defend yourself and, and defend your stuff, you could leave your property in the day room, which is the main area where everybody is. Everybody lives in their cells. You come out to the day room where the TVs are. I could leave stuff in the day room for days at a time. People did. They would leave stuff in the day room for days at a time and no one will touch it. No one will... You leave something on the day room table, and no one will even touch it because you can't touch another man's property. That's disrespect. And if you've earned your right to exist in there, no one's going to touch it. It's one of the safest places there is for your stuff. It's way safer than out here. Really? Yeah, yeah. You you wouldn't just leave stuff laying around your front yard. You wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't take off a Rolex and just sit it on the back of your car, and your phone, and all that stuff. Like, you know, you you get at home at night, you go to your nightstand, you take out your wallet, you take out your key or your purse, you put your purse down. Literally in prison, what I'm telling you is if you've established yourself, you could take out all those kind of valuable things, the equally valuable in prison. You could put that all on the day room table and no one will touch it. But if you're someone that hasn't earned a right, right. if you haven't established yourself, you don't defend yourself, everybody's going to come take it. And everybody's going to take everything else from you, too.
1: Kevin, did you know the two things I love to do is eat and support small businesses? That is correct. And Snacks with a Twist checks both boxes. From
0: specialty pretzels to sweet treats like peanut butter bark and our kids' favorite Buckeye Marshmallow Pops, this store is a one-stop shop for snacks, treats, and gifts.
1: You guys will not be disappointed with anything you purchase, and they will ship it to your doorstep. They are a proud sponsor of Tell Us a Good Story. When you were arrested, and you're talking to Mr. Jackson, and he's telling you this, how scared were you? Mortified.
2: Terrified. I don't think I can make it through this. And uh-huh. that's when he tells me, he's, he's trying to explain to me what prison is going to be like. And he, see, he can see that there's this glazed over like a deer in headlights. And that's when he's like, hey, let me break it down for you a different way. And he said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. And he said, anything we put to this pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside this pot. He said, I'm going to put three things in this pot of boiling water and watch how they change a carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. So here's where I first hear the story the coffee bean, the summer of 2009 in Dallas County Jail, exactly 10 years before John Gordon and I write the best selling book, The Coffee Bean, in the summer of 2019. So he tells me, he's like, first things first. He said, if I put a carrot in the pot of boiling water we call prison, what happens to the carrot? And I'm like, I mean, the carrot's going to turn soft, you know? That's what happens to a carrot. He said, that's right. The carrot goes into the water hard, but the water, the prison, it'll turn the hard carrot, soft, mushy, weak. Carrot gets beat. He gets robbed. May get killed. You don't want to be the carrot. What about the egg? What happened to the egg in the pot of boiling water we call prison? I was like, well, the egg will turn hard, man, like a hard-boiled egg. He said, that's right. He said, the egg has a shell that protects it physically. But inside that shell, that soft liquid core, the egg's heart becomes hardened. He says, if your heart becomes hardened, you become incapable of giving or receiving love. He said, if you're incapable of giving or receiving love, you become institutionalized and you won't come back as someone your parents recognize because your eggshell will have swastikas tattooed all over it. Mm. And then he asked me, he said, what about the coffee bean? What happened to the coffee bean in the pot of warm water we call prison? And y'all, I didn't have an answer for Mr. Jackson. I didn't know what happened to a coffee bean in a pot of warm water. And that is when Mr. Jackson, a man who looked nothing like me, didn't come from the same America I came from, didn't believe the same things I believed in life. This is a black Muslim man from the streets of Dallas, Texas. I'm a white middle-class Catholic guy from a little bitty town called Port Arthur, Texas. But this man who was so different than me shared with me one of the most important and transformational messages I've ever received in my entire life. And like I tell people all the time, the moral to that is this. If you ever shut yourself off to people because of their differences, different race, different gender, ethnicity, different religion, different political views than your own. If you close yourself off to people because of their differences, you're going to miss some of the most important lessons and some of the best friendships in this life. Because Mr. Jackson shared with me that day. He said, if I put a coffee bean in the same pot of boiling water, we call prison. He said, now you got to change the name of the water, the coffee. Mm. Cause he said, the coffee bean, the smallest of the three things. He said, small like you had the power to change the entire atmosphere inside that pot because the power was inside the coffee bean. He said, just like the power is inside of you. It changed the atmosphere. It didn't
1: oh, change him. Oh, my gosh. This yeah.
0: Mr. Jackson sounds like Morgan Freeman.
1: I was thinking yeah. the same thing. I'm like, is this red? Are we talking about red here? What do he look like? Yeah. <laughs> well, he was incredible. I have a question for you because you said when you are doing the drugs, like you got away from God. Like God means nothing to you. But then you said when you were in prison, like, guys, it's me and God in here. So what changed?
2: Yeah, so my God became meth, you know, and that's what I think happens to people a lot of times. They worship, you know, when you're when you living a life that's not in the path of Christ or what you're supposed to be living, you're worshiping the wrong things, and this happens in life. It happens to a lot of people, man, and people that use... Just because someone goes to church doesn't mean they're really, really living a good spiritual right. life. And I, in my book, The Change Agent... You know, I talk about the difference between religion and spirituality. There's a big difference between religion and spirituality. I mean, because I mean a lot of religious people. I've known a lot of religious people that weren't very spiritual. They didn't live a really good life because they weren't very spiritual. In prison, they say this: the difference between religion and spirituality. Religion is for people who have never been to hell and don't want to go. Spirituality is for people who've been to hell and don't want to go back. Mm. You know, and if you've been through something like you've been through something in life, you've been through something in life. You've been to hell. You don't want to go back. There's different versions of hell. It didn't have to be this fiery pit. Life is tough. Life is yes, hard. Yes. But spirituality is the thing that holds us together from that. When you live in the, you know, what Christ wants you to live like. And whenever I got into prison, the activating event for this goes back to the day I was sentenced to life in prison May 18th, 2009. It's also the day that I have that conversation with my mom and my dad. My mom's telling me, no gangs, no tattoos. She's telling me, get on God's back. She used to have this footprints in the sand thing on my wall mm. when I was a kid growing up. So she's reminding me, just get on God's back, Damon. Get on God's back. I don't want to lose my son. So that night, when I get back to my pod, because, I mean, the trial has lasted six days. And these guys, it's it's high profile. Like, a, you, know, like you said, it's got a it's name in the news. to it. It's in the news. The Uptown Burglars sent us to 65 years. When I walk into my pod in Dallas County jail, everybody's looking at me like a dead man walking because Mm. I just got a life sentence handed to me. No one wants to come near you. It's like they can catch it, right? Like no Mm. one wants to catch this life sentence. Like, stay away from me, dude. (laughs) And I know that all these eyes are on me. Here's the thing about prison and jail. You can't cry. You can't show emotion like that. That's weakness. That's what the predators are looking for that. And they're like, I know, I'm consciously aware. There's predators watching me to see how I'm handling this because like vultures, they see something dead. So I go gather my things and I go take my shower, hold my head up high, go take my shower. And the shower is where you can cry because you can't really tell someone's been crying in the shower. Your eyes are red, you know, Mm -hmm. and I start crying y'all. And I Mm -hmm. I have a conversation with Christ. I'm like, Hey, I can't do this anymore. And you know, know this It's Christ is like, come on. Mm -hmm. I never left. I got you, you know? And that was when I surrendered May 18th, 2009. I went in the shower, surrendered because I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I wouldn't get anywhere if I didn't have Christ you know, in charge. If I didn't surrender, yeah, that's like a program recovery for drug addicts. You know, the first step in a 12-step program recovery is admitting your power. You got to surrender. That's the one step you have to do every day. By the way, you know, I work a 12-step program recovery called AA, and in AA, the one step I have to do every day is surrender. I have to surrender because I can't do this on my own. We can't do this on our own. But not everybody understands that. <laughs>
0: i heard this story when i was researching you but can you share the story with stuff of how you were actually arrested and they took you to jail for the first time
2: yeah july 30th 2008 i'll never forget the date it's also the last date that i did drugs i mean my sobriety date is this day because i'm sitting on the couch smoking meth with my meth dealer's name is Tex. we're passing this pipe back and forth it's at this apartment where i live and I'm telling Tex, dude, you don't want to be here. The cops are closing in on me. The end is near. Ten days before this, they picked up my partner in crime, Dustin, in a stolen car. So they've got my partner in crime in custody, which means I know they're going to get to me because they're going to break him. Mm-hmm. And, man, just as I'm passing the pipe back to Tex, the window on the right blows out and shatters. And then tumbling across the living room floor is a little canister going end over end, smoking on one side. And it's like slow motion. It's like, oh, my God, this is going on. I've seen this movie before. Right. And I tried to get out of there as fast as I could, but man, that thing's on the fuse. It blows up in my face. The flashbang grenade, boom, blows me back on the couch. Bright white light, loud noise. And man, when I came to, what I could see and hear again, there's this cop standing over me in full SWAT, riot gear, boot on my chest. The barrel of an assault rifle is digging in my eye socket. I could feel the barrel pressing against my skull. And his finger's over that trigger, and he is screaming at the top of his lungs, Don't move, don't move. And I'm like, man, don't worry, don't worry. You know? <laughs> And one of the cops comes in and screams out loud, we got him. We got the Uptown burglar. That was it. And they had me. Friends, we want to encourage you to please
0: follow us wherever you listen to this, whether it's on the Apple Podcast app, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or one of the other platforms. You
1: guys, it's completely free. And while you're there, feel free to give us a rating or a nice review.
0: Thank you for listening to
1: Tell Us a Good Story.